and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and that was Nick Drake, an introduction. And I thought that was very fitting because we're here to discuss the new biography of Nick Drake, The Life by Richard Morton Jack. And I've got Richard here to talk about that biography as well as welcoming you, Richard. I think this is a really, really important book in the Nick Drake story in that it's the only biography with the blessing and involvement of Nick's sister, Gabrielle, and his estate. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, it is the only book that his estate has given their blessing to, but the word authorised is a little bit vexed because Gabrielle was always conscious that it carried with it a slight whiff of censorship or of control. And in fact, she's been extremely free and open with every aspect of the project. So the word authorised has been left off the book title deliberately because we wanted to avoid any sense in which she had been managing what's in there. And so the book came around because I felt such a book was needed. I feel quite strongly that Nick is in that small category of artists of his sort who will continue to attract audiences and curiosity about his life in generations to come. So I thought it was a really useful exercise to speak to everyone still alive who ever knew him and to try to get the absolute facts accurate about him. Because when people die young, and especially in this field of popular music, there's so much mythologization goes on and people want their iconic singers to have been more than human. And I wanted to try to anchor Nick more in the reality that, that he obviously operated in. So I've known Gabrielle for a fair number of years now and um, and I helped on her book Remembered for a while and I put out her Family Tree album on vinyl. So when she did Remembered for a while in 2014, uh, when that was published, I immediately upon seeing it thought this deserves to be turned into a narrative rather than just being a compendium, which is a brilliant compendium. I wish that every artist I liked had a book like Remembered for a while with all the bits and bobs in it. But turning that into a narrative and and also fleshing it out as much as possible with other research was the goal. And and Gabrielle permitted me to do that because I think she realised that if that exercise weren't done, misconceptions and downright falsehoods about Nick and her wider family would probably go onto the record and be repeated for time to come. A huge level of research here and going near the start of of Nick's life and and into his teens, you really get a sense of a warm, warm family, a musical family. Even Nick's father, Rodney, could sing and play piano. But it was Nick's mum, Molly, who was a prime influence. Absolutely. I, I think that it's quite normal in the, broadly speaking, pop world for people to be in some sort of conflict with their parents over their choice to be in a group or to start singing or playing the guitar. Especially in that era, it was seen as something slightly rebellious and countercultural, etc., especially in the social stratum that the Drakes occupied. So Nick was in a very unusual position of being absolutely encouraged from day one to play piano and then saxophone, clarinet, guitar, and to write his own material. I think a crucial fact about Nick is that he grew up, as you say, with the sound of his mother playing and singing her own songs and writing them all around him and recording them as well on the family's home tape machine. So for Nick, the act of songwriting and of formulating responses to the world in song was completely normal. He, he wouldn't have realised until 
well into his childhood or adolescence that no one else did that, none of his peers. So I think that was a very important influence on him, that there was no sense in which he had to be furtive or secretive about his songwriting in the short term. It's quite an interesting dynamic in a way, because you, when you read about other artists, you get the usual story of their influences and rock and roll and whatever, but there seems to be a real family influence in terms of Nick's songwriting and the quality of Molly's songs, like I remember, which brilliantly here, due to the fact that there was a reel-to-reel tape recorder, you can kind of see a a connection or the lineage there. Yes, I entirely agree. Obviously, Molly was working within slightly different traditions to Nick superficially, because the songwriting styles that Nick was exploring didn't exist in the 1950s and, and arguably a little later when she was making her recordings. But I think, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. You can detect clear lines between Molly and Nick. I'm not sure the extent to which Nick would have admitted that or wanted it to be noticed, but it's inevitable, I think. We tramped the open moorland in the rainy April upon the little inn that we had found together the landlord gave us toast and tea and stopped to share a joke and I remember firelight I remember firelight I remember firelight and you remember smoke We ran about the meadow grass with all the harebells bending And shaking in the summer wind, a summer never ending We wandered to the little stream among the river flats And I remember willow trees, I remember willow trees I remember willow trees And you remember gnats We strolled the Spanish marketplace at ninety In the shade With all the fruit and vegetables So temptingly arrayed And we can share a memory as every lover must And I remember oranges I remember oranges I remember oranges And you remember dust The autumn leaves are tumbling down And winter's almost here But through the spring and summertime We laughed away the year of memory For I remember having fun Two happy hearts that beat as one When I had thought that we were we But we were you and me
really good. Nick's background in terms of boarding school initially and then Marlborough College. And then through that, there seems to be a thread of, as well as being in sports, an artistic element of Nick being in the choir, eventually going from piano and to guitar. Yes, I thought it was quite interesting, actually, that Nick wasn't more broadly speaking, particularly artistic. I would have assumed that someone of his, with his level of imaginative engagement with the world, as we can observe in his music, would also, as a schoolboy, have written poetry or painted lots of pictures or done, you know, written for the school magazine, whatever it might be, acted in lots of plays, seeked outlets for that creativity. But Nick didn't do any of that, really. The bare minimum, his creativity in terms of output seems to have been very much limited to the songs that he wrote and recorded. But yes, I think at school, it's quite important to emphasise that at boarding school, Nick did thrive. I can't speak for his every moment of the day from beginning to end, but objectively from outside anyway it seems that he was nothing but well adjusted and in a good gang of mates at the school he went to before Marlborough when he was eight until 18 when he left Marlborough it doesn't seem to have been an an environment that stifled him or upset him and his songs don't seem to come from a place of emotional disquiet in the way that has sometimes been assumed on the basis of being sent off to school. He's often badged in the folk tradition but it's very much where there is an element of folk. His influences is not the, the English folk. You've got his recording with uh, Gabrielle of All My Trials when they had that short-lived folk duo. It's very much American influences and not necessarily the English element. Absolutely. I, I think that's an important thing. Nick wasn't a folk singer, but this word gets used now simply to mean anyone who uses an acoustic guitar. And it's a perfectly useful catch-all term, but... It doesn't mean traditional folk, finger in the ear, sea shanties, even the pagan stuff, which is so trendy now. It doesn't mean any of that. I don't think Nick particularly knew British folk songs. I don't think they appealed to him. I think what Nick, being an English guy, of course, the American stuff seemed more glamorous and more foreign, but also the image of the beatnik style dropping out and strolling down the highway with your guitar on your back. I think that was obviously very appealing to a, a privileged schoolboy at a boarding place in the middle of nowhere in in the countryside so I think that's what Nick was drawn to but something else that I was quite grateful for when the thoughts finally dawned on me is that Nick knew all these songs and learned almost all of the ones that we know he sang and played from Peter Paul and Mary there's been an assumption that aged 14 he was steeped in Delta Blues or Bucker White or the traditional folk canon going up and down to Dobells and so on in London to buy these records. And sure enough, look on the back cover of the early Peter, Paul and Mary records, and there all those songs are. And they were, of course, hugely influential artists in their time. Now they're not listened to so much because it's more the influence of those records we feel than than the power of their interpretations. But at the time, their interpretations were how a whole generation of kids like Nick, who had just bought their first guitars, were engaging with American counterculture and, and, of course, with broader things like civil rights that were so important to that generation of American singers. So I think, yeah, Nick shouldn't be seen as a folk singer, but of course he sang folk songs because that's what you did with a guitar. No one would have been writing their own arrangements of stone songs at that point, sort of 64, 65, when Nick was starting to take the guitar seriously. A little book was given to me 
And every page spells liberty All my trials, Lord Soon be over There is a tree in paradise And the pilgrims call it the tree of life All my trials, Lord Soon be over But it's too But never mind Oh, my trials, Lord Soon be over If religion were a thing that money could buy Then the rich would live and the poor would die Oh You get to read about events in his life that I certainly didn't know. There's that moment before Nick goes to uh, Fitzwilliam College and spends time in a university in France, but then also goes over to Morocco. And there's just those remarkable moments where he meets the Rolling Stones entourage and plays for Mick Jagger. Yes, Morocco was a very important experience for Nick in general because it was, as it, you know, all of us or many of us have that experience at some point in your life, your first true piece of independence when there's no one there to tell you what to do, what to wear, where to be, what to be achieving with your day or days or weeks. And I think for Nick, the University of X was a partial taste of that because he was free of his parents and his schools and so on, but he was still within a structure of having to supposedly go to lectures and so on. But Mick, after not much more than a fortnight in X, disappeared to Morocco, where he just did what he wanted for the first time in his life with a group of new friends slash acquaintances. And as you say, one of the adventures they had was encountering the Stones, who were there by pure coincidence in Marrakesh. They finally interacted with them. Nick was prevailed upon by another member of their party to go and play for them in their hotel which he did. And what's interesting about this is it's a corrective to the image of Nick being absolutely unable to perform without being crippled with nerves and stage fright and all this sort of stuff. I mean, here we have Nick aged 18, already a fine guitarist, but not much of a songwriter yet, performing quite happily in front of perhaps the two most intimidating, maybe John and Paul would have been more intimidating, who's to say, but absolutely two of the most intimidating and certainly in terms of the image they projected and he did it by by the accounts of those who were there very confidently and very stylishly and at the end Mick said come and see us when you're back in London which as Nick's friend who was telling me about it said I doubt Mick said that to everyone so I think yes that interlude in Morocco did have a certain power for Nick beyond just being fun I think it was where he found a lot of confidence and and a sense of of mission 
and also where he realized that people who had already achieved what he wanted to achieve in that field would give him potentially respect and help. In 1967, Nick started to write material when he was over in France. There was elements of busking as well. And in terms of that writing, some of those songs that people are familiar now, like Strange Meeting 2, start to come in. So his songwriting started to form. Yes, absolutely. It's hard to know exactly where and when Nick began to write songs. I mean, he began to play guitar at the tail end of 1964. So, yeah, he he was a good guitarist by this point. But the first songwriting attempts by Nick are almost certain to have been, as for everyone, derivative and a bit superficial and probably not things that he would ever have shared or wanted to survive. I didn't see any evidence of earlier songs than the ones he wrote in France, no notebooks. But then again, I didn't see any evidence of anything really beyond the songs we know, because Nick had always such a high threshold within his own creativity for what he considered to be worthy. And I think he simply got rid of anything he didn't like or twisted it into a new shape. He was probably quite thrifty with his songwriting and bits that didn't work in one iteration, he'd he'd move on to another. And because he played the guitar restlessly, he was always just noodling on it. I think there wasn't much wastage when he hit upon something he liked. He incorporated it into something that he was building. So we don't really have much of a clue as to Nick's genesis as a songwriter. So the, the illusion perhaps is that when he did start writing songs that we know of in X, they seem to be bizarrely good. But it may be that he'd already been working very hard for a year or so on material that he jettisoned. But be that as it may, the first songs that we can definitely say Nick wrote these and they survive are really very good, good enough to have been recorded and released at the time. Another song I had very recently, which means I'm likely to forget the words. Stared at me in my mind 
was in a maze As we moved along in a summer sea dream haze But it made no sound The message she brought Can never be found But I called her My princess And sang One moment We walked with the night breeze In our face Then I looked She'd gone of her presence, there was no trace. Where she went or came from, who can know if she'll ever return to help me know who she is, my princess of the sand. my surrealist song. <laughs> it's crazy, I know, it's, it's, sort of, it's a sort of funny dream. In that period, the quality of the songs really go up a notch. Time of No Reply is, is up there in, in the top tranche. That was a song that I think had references the theme of difficulty communicating. Yes, I'm a bit hesitant to treat Nick's songs as clues in a in an investigation or, or as crossword puzzles because I think, as one or two of his friends said to me very confidently, they Nick's lyrics were often happy turns of phrase that just he threw out as he was singing and they stuck as he was writing. I mean, rather than being carefully considered works of literature, as it were. So yes, but I think there is from the start with Nick, a definite thread in his songs in terms of narrative of being an onlooker, finding it hard to interact or seeing girls who seem otherworldly and who can't be reached. And, and there is, as you say, a sense of stillness and, and isolation that he communicates. And that is striking. But of course, there are also happy little love songs and other themes that contradict that so i'd be hesitant to say that as of the age of 18 or 19 he was already psychologically tracked i think that was to an extent a pose that a young man found appealing or or, or comfortable for his image at that point how did nick find the shift going to fitzwilliam 
I think it was the most obvious example of him living up to other people's ambitions and intentions for him. But I think it's really easy to seem to be a bit judgmental about Nick's parents. I don't think any parents then or now would have said to a, a son aged 18, why don't you just not go to university and not do anything structured? Why don't you just be an artist? Because you're obviously quite good at it. In hindsight, yes, it would have been great if if he'd been made to feel completely free to do whatever he wanted. But I don't think that's reality. And I think his parents were much more supportive of his musical talent and ambition than they might have been, for sure. But I think Fitzwilliam, he never wanted to go to university. He didn't place any value himself on intellectual snobbery. I don't think he cared how he was perceived in terms of academic achievement. He had performed pretty poorly at school academically throughout his school days. So getting him into Cambridge was an absolute squeeze. And Fitzwilliam was a very new college, quite distant from the centre of town where the ancient colleges are. And Marlborough, where Nick was at school, had a back door into it in a way which doesn't exist now. But back then, there was quite a lot of discreet communication going on between schools who were friends with certain professors and so on. You know, this this is a good chap. I think, you know, he's a good, a jolly good rugby player. And I think a lot of that used to go on. So Nick was somehow squished into Cambridge and I think turned up in October 1967, slightly reluctantly, slightly startled to find himself back in tweed jacket land, having to be at certain places at certain times to make notes at lectures. And because by that point, Nick was very much focused on writing songs and singing them. He knew that that was where he was most comfortable in life. So Cambridge was a pain in the backside for him, basically. But I think what we have to be grateful for is that Cambridge both gave him a structure to his life, which very much informed the creation of Five Leaves Left in in different ways. And also, needless to say, Cambridge is where he met Robert Kirby, with whom he of course, worked very closely. And on yeah, Nick's work, he had he had such a large influence, not just as an arranger, but as an encourager, as a champion, and as a subtle suggester of ways in which Nick might take a certain song. They were collaborative. It's a misconception that Robert would have simply written an arrangement and said to Nick, here you go, I've put it in your pigeonhole. It was absolutely a collaboration. Robert gets the arrangement credits on the sleeves, but in a sense, that's generous of Nick because they were written together. Nick knew how to read and write music himself. And the accounts Robert gave of the arrangements being written were absolutely collaborative. So I think Cambridge gave Nick the time and space to sit around with Robert for as long as they liked in lovely surroundings in Robert's college and um, working away on these songs. So whilst Fitzwilliam and the concept of Cambridge was anathema to Nick, I think, by the time he went, it did have strong benefits to him. I think we should all be grateful he went and that his parents did at least get him there because I'm not sure that he would have made the music he did without it. Yeah, because when you listen to Five Blaze Left and Days Done, for example, it's quite a balance when you put strings or add strings on on material. If it's done in the wrong way, it can be very sort of syrupy. That's not the case at all in relation to the collaboration that Nick had with Robert. No, I think the standard pop arrangement for strings in those days and obviously I'm not talking about George Martin but the standard was that you just sat an arrangement on top of a backing track 
and that would be written quite quickly and played by apathetic professionals who were probably wearing dinner jackets rushing off to do be in the pit of a West End theatre or whatever it was and I think where Nick's songs really benefited from having Robert doing the arrangements is that they didn't just have a pro bashing something out and sticking it on top of Nick's songs the arrangements are absolutely integrated and what's interesting hearing one or two recordings that survive of Nick playing the same songs without the arrangements is that he simply leaves the gaps and continues to play the guitar where the arrangements should go I think those arrangements are part of for Nick they weren't separable I think that was part of the reason that he found performing live so unsatisfactory was that he didn't really know how to play the songs without the arrangements they'd become fused for him so yes they, they, they are absolutely part and parcel of Nick's conception of those songs the arrangements just to steer it a bit ahead when people then go on to say oh, well, wouldn't it have been interesting to hear Pink Moon with arrangements? I wonder what Robert would have done. I think that slightly misses the point. The songs on Pink Moon were never going to have arrangements because Nick knew himself well enough as an artist. Those weren't songs that he wanted arrangements on. Ashley Hutchins then of Fairport Convention that saw Nick live and then tipped Joe Boyd off, which got Joe involved to ultimately getting Nick signed to Ireland. Yes, absolutely. What's really lovely about Nick's story is often, I suppose most artists have this, um, but there are moments of pure serendipity. And 
for Nick, he'd spent his first term at Cambridge bashing along with his guitar in his room instead of engaging with his studies or the social life of the college or the sporting opportunities that were available to him and all the things that in theory he would have been doing and that he had claimed he was going to do in his application. And simultaneously, some of Nick's friends had become involved in London, new friends of his from the summer of 67, who he had only recently met, got involved in this idealistic endeavour to to raise funds to create an arts centre for underprivileged children. And under the name of Circus Alpha Centauri, they put on a week of events, films, music, dance, poetry, etc., a children's party at the Roundhouse in North London. And because they were short of people to fill up the bill, they said to Nick, do you want to do a spot, mate? And so that's how Nick, by pure chance, came to do this. And the luck for Nick was that Country Joe and the Fish were playing their first ever British dates that week. So Nick was on the same bill as Country Joe and the Fish, who I think it's hard to convey now, but those San Francisco bands in 1967 in the UK were almost like mythological gods. It didn't seem possible that that, that a taste of that Californian magic was coming to London, to cold drafty old London. And So it was a very well-anticipated and well-attended evening. And Nick had this golden opportunity to to perform. And Ashley Hutchings wasn't performing that night. So again, he just happened to be in the audience because he liked Country Joe and the Fish and he happened to see Nick. And moreover, when Nick was in the audience milling around himself later, Ashley happened to catch sight of him again and go over and say hello. So that was Nick's first ever live performance. And it led directly to his recording career. And I don't think many recording artists, well, I can't think of any others, there probably are one or two, but can owe their recording career to being spotted at their first ever gig. So, yeah, that was luck. But of course, also an indication of how charismatic Nick was as a performer. Joe Boyd and Ireland, when recording five leaves left, the sound of it is is so well done. And it's clear when you have the strings on, on Riverman, another epic track, and that was arranged that time by Harry Robinson, there seems to be a bit of a dichotomy in relation to you've got an album that is so well made and it must have cost quite a bit to make, but it didn't necessarily get the push that it should have done. I don't know whose responsibility was it. Was it Islands? Was it Joe Boyd's organisation? Which season? Was it something you think got caught in the middle? I think it's a really interesting puzzle. I wish I had a good answer for that. No one has. I've tried. Yes, as you rightly say, five leaves left. You can tell on a first airing, is the work of a lot of time, trouble, love, care, et cetera, et cetera. And yet when it came out in July, 1969, it slightly headed into a vacuum. There was no real promo effort. There was no particularly concerted PR campaign of any sort, which does seem weird. I can try to explain it by saying that which season, the, the company that Joe Boyd ran and that licensed the acts to Ireland, the recordings to Ireland, was reeling because Fairport Convention had very recently, in May, had a terrible blow when Fairport Convention's um, bus had gone over an embankment and um, killed their drummer and and, and, uh, Richard Thompson's girlfriend and all sorts of mayhem ensued from that. So I think that was one reason why their eye wasn't massively on the ball with Nick. But secondly, I think Nick was just such a bad self-promoter. He just didn't have the right personality to big himself up. 
So I think between which season and Ireland, there was probably a degree of miscommunication. But I think they maybe decided that the best way to build Nick's reputation was to leave him to his own devices and create a certain mystique and allow the quality of the music to speak for itself. Because at the time Five Leaves Left came out, everyone by common consensus, certainly everyone I've spoken to, who knew Nick and who knew the album and who had been involved, thought it was just an, a given that it was going to be a success because they made that common idealistic error, sadly, of thinking that something that good simply had to succeed. And unfortunately, as we know, you and I know very well from uh, rock history, the best things tended to take a very long time to be recognised as such. Meanwhile, the junk gets to the top of the charts. And I think Nick, perhaps with a degree of complacency of his own, but in general, Nick was led to believe, don't worry, five leaves left will slowly gather momentum like a snowball and eventually will become this juggernaut to mix my metaphors. But unfortunately, when that didn't happen, you know, Nick felt a little bitter and, and understandably so. And I wasn't aware before reading, actually, that that certainly in, in that first period of Nick releasing records that he did play quite a bit live. You've got the Royal Festival Hall show with, with Fairport after the release of Five Lees Left, which I think did go down well, albeit quite a lot of nerves. But then you've got a number of gigs in the country with Nick playing to rowdy audiences, for some reason, often off on the bill with Genesis. It doesn't seem to have been positioned right when you're sending Nick off somewhere to some corporate event in a way, rowdy or rugby clubs. It just doesn't feel the, the right fit for his sound. And even folk clubs isn't really the right fit for his sound either. No, I, I mean, this was a, a very frustrating problem for the people that were trying to help Nick and for Nick himself, of course. The perfect live environment for Nick would have been a medium-sized room, small to medium-sized room with good acoustics, with seating, with perhaps one or two ancillary musicians, double bassist or a, a second guitarist or, or even some strings backing him and a respectful atmosphere in the room listening to him. Nick would have, I think, thrived with that. But unfortunately, you had to work towards getting that. If you wanted to be playing in a room like the Purcell rooms at the Festival Hall or somewhere like that, you had to work your way towards it by doing all of the schlepping around and dealing with the, the standard response to a, an unknown folk singer, which was heckling and laughter and chatting and people coming in and going out while you were playing. And Nick, I think, just was not suited both psychologically to controlling an audience, holding them in the palm of his hand, not only on in performance, but also in between songs. But also, I don't think... I think he recognised quite quickly that the sort of music he was playing was never going to make an impact in that in those environments. So whilst he was grateful for getting you know a tenor at the end of the evening, and I think to an extent was dependent on that to keep body and soul together in his first few months after leaving university, I think he increasingly became aware that he wasn't achieving anything by doing it and that it was just demoralising and, and tiring. And also, I think that's probably an element of him without this wanting to sound like a, a criticism of him particularly. But I think it wasn't something that came at all naturally to him. He'd grown up in an environment where sleeping on people's floors and schlepping around on trains and eating and sleeping badly and the camaraderie with people who very largely didn't come from the same background as him. I think he felt a little bit outside of and a bit self-conscious in that 
traveling musician milieu and I think he overestimated how easily he'd slot into it. Betty came by on the way Said she had a word to say About things today Said she hadn't heard the news Hadn't had the time to choose Way to lose But she believes Gonna see the river man Gonna tell him all I If he tells me all he knows About the way his river flows And all night shows In summertime Said she prayed today for the sky to blow away, or maybe stay. She wasn't sure. For when she thought of summer rain, calling for her mind again. Lost the pain and stayed for love. Gonna see the river man, gonna tell him all I can about the band. If it tells me all he knows About the way his river flows I don't suppose It's meant for me
writer later seemed to take an age to get released. Why was that? And, and also, what was uh, John Cale's role? Well, the reason Nick left Cambridge in October 1969. He started his third year, but barely, because I think he just felt this overwhelming need to build on whatever momentum Five Leaves Left had created and make another album. And without it being explicitly agreed, the decision was taken that Brighter Later should be more broadly appealing. I'm trying to avoid saying more commercial because that sounds like a cynical, Mm. you know, let's just add whatever we can to it to get it on the radio and into the charts. And it wasn't like that. But I think the idea was that they, Joe felt that he had found such a rare talent They'd done Five Leaves Left without giving a thought to the market's response or desire for it. And then I think they thought with Brighter Later, well, let's try to create an album which has a more broadly appealing sound, isn't as austere and so forth. So I think Nick went into Brighter Later with a lot of optimism and, and wrote the songs very much with the arrangements in mind that, that came on to, um, yeah, that we can all hear, the drums, the horns and so on, and was very happy with that. But there were two songs, Fly and Northern Sky, that as of the end of March 1970 still hadn't been finished. Now, why Nick didn't ask Robert to arrange those two, I wish I knew. No one ever asked Robert and he never said. I can speculate. It may be that Robert tried to arrange them and just couldn't come up with a sound that he was happy with, as he had been happy to admit was the case with Riverman. Or it may be that Nick hadn't finished writing those songs to his satisfaction in time for them to be recorded at the same time as all the others. It's just, I I just don't know. But one way or another, in June 1970, Fly and Northern Sky existed as backing tracks, but not with arrangements. And until they were finished and arranged, the album wasn't finished. And Joe was in Sound Techniques mixing Desert Shore by Nico with John Wood and John Cale. And at one point, Joe said, Look, why don't I play you some of the songs, recordings John Wood and I have been making recently? And they threaded up the Brighter Later recordings. And when John realised that Fly and Northern Sky were still awaiting completion, he immediately said, well, I want to do it. I want to meet this guy. I want to work on these songs. So that's what happened. But this is going back now 53 years, whether or not, Joe actually said to John, well, maybe you should talk to Nick because we don't have any other ideas. I don't know exactly how it went down, but Nick was basically blindsided by having Joe send John Cale over to his flat. And um, and in no time at all, it seems, these arrangements were put together and, and those songs were finished. But then, sorry, this is a long answer to your question. Oh. Then, unfortunately, Bright Later was done and dusted in about June of 1970 but by about the 10th or the middle of June anyway. And then it was over to Ireland, but Ireland was going through quite a turbulent period in the second half of 1970. Um, Chris Blackwell was changing his role within the company. There was They were rebranding from their famous pink design to their palm tree design, which was a big exercise. They were doing a big marketing PR push called LP, which involved holding back new releases so they could tie it in with that campaign. Then Joe decided he wanted to go back to America, which meant that which season's relationship with Ireland had to be renegotiated and agreed. Meanwhile, Ireland was negotiating with Capitol Records in America to assign copyrights or to license material over there. And there were huge postal strikes in the UK, which meant that sending records off to reviewers and radio stations became more complicated. 
for one reason after another, Brighter Later just kept being pushed back, kept being pushed back. And sadly, simultaneously, over the course of 1970, Nick's mental health started declining quite sharply. And then the release of Bright Later, the delay of release of Bright Later was one of the frustrations that aggravated Nick's condition. I don't think it caused it. But I think Nick became more and more frustrated that he'd left Cambridge in order to make this album and show the world what he had in him. And it wasn't even being released, let alone not being listened to. So Brighter Later's delays, I think, really frustrated Nick. And, and um, when, when it did come out in March 1971, you know, nine months after it had been finished, when plausibly it could have come out the previous summer, I think Nick felt that a lot of momentum had been lost. No one really remembered Five Leaves Left. And the atmosphere was very different in 1971 to 1969. I think there was a general death of the hippie dream and so on had happened. And I think Nick felt Brighter Later had just missed its chance. And indeed, it, it did have wonderful reviews and very low sales again. As you were talking about, Nick's mental health seemed to decline in the eventual run-up to Brighter Later's release. And you cover series of events where the place where Nick was staying was sold and then he was moving back to his home, his parents' home, and then back again into a what seems like quite a grim bedsit. You've also got Joe Boyd leaving the UK. So you've got quite a tumultuous at least 18-month period where things were kind of going in the wrong direction? Yes. I think overarching all of those was the fact that Nick didn't feel that his music was reaching an audience. And I think because that had become his only real priority in life, it undermined all the other areas of, of his life. I think there was an element of enjoyment of life for him still in terms of he did a bit of European travel and and he still certainly belonged to a very devoted and close group of friends and so on. But yes, he he did drift away psychologically over the course of 1970 to 71. And, and I think in particular, moving back home was very unwelcome from him. I mean, who, who would want to move back in with their parents after they'd been living alone for 18 months in their own flat in London, and then suddenly you're back in the English countryside in your childhood bedroom? I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about Nick feeling a sense of frustration at that. But yes, I think where Nick found himself in late 1971, compared to where he'd expected and been led to believe he would be, were very different. And I think that did cause a lot of resentment and frustration in him. Through the people I have known Oh 
a surprise when he asked uh, John Wood to go into the studio with him and record the material of Pink Moon and typified by Things Behind the Sun, purposely sparser sound. Yes, I think it's easy to put two and two together and get five on that and say, well, obviously he didn't like Brighter Later because it had all these pop trappings on it. And when it didn't sell as a sort of two-finger salute to Joe Boyd and Ireland, he just decided to go and make this Stark album. I think that's wrong. My impression is that Nick had Pink Moon in mind a lot earlier than he recorded it. I think he knew, even in 1969 perhaps, that he wanted to work towards making an album of just him and his guitar uh, and, and push the instrument to express everything that he could get it to. And I think obviously it was a lot simpler to record just a guitar. I think the delays over the release of Brighter Later consolidated in Nick's mind the, the wisdom of just making an album on his own. But I think the songs on Pink Moon date from much earlier than the recording. And I also wonder, although I can't state it, but I wonder whether Nick actually deep down knew in his worsening mental state that he needed to get Pink Moon out that he needed to get these songs down on tape while he was still able because his creative powers were diminishing. His ability to generate new material and to play the guitar and sing simultaneously were going by 1971. 
and the awareness that not only had he not found this audience that he really wanted, but also that he was losing his ability to generate and to record and to perform was absolutely devastating for him. So I suspect that Nick really had to wrench Pink Moon out of himself. And it was a very unpleasant and tortuous process for him, as you say, involving going back to live in a very unpleasant bedsit, which barely anyone gained access to in Muswell Hill, uh, where he put Pink Moon together. And um, he recorded it swiftly over the course of two evenings in October 1971. And John Wood, who had worked with him closely on Five Leaves Left and Brighter Later, was shocked by Nick's physical appearance and also his psychological condition. You know, Nick was no longer as assertive or as talkative as he had been. And yet he delivered these wonderful, note-perfect recordings very fluently. So the brilliance was still there, but clearly things were running away from him in psychological terms. And over the next few years before Nick passed away, it, it wasn't like Nick lacked people around him who who would tr- certainly try and, and help him. He had Muff Winwood trying to sort of push him. And I think there was a, a time when uh, he, Nick had a place on the old grey whistle test and then Nick pushed that away. You've got Joe Boyd in terms of recording new material. And then crucially, you've got Nick's family trying to provide the support where, where they could. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Nick was not isolated um, in terms of other people's encouragement and support and love and help, professional help. I think when you say push, I think one of the good things about Nick's, the way Nick was handled is that people didn't push him. But Ireland right. and Joe did say, you know, we're here when you want us. And that's because the culture at Ireland from Chris Blackwell downwards was when we sign an artist, we believe in them. It might take them three or four albums before they have a hit. And the classic example was, you know, Freeze, tons of sobs, and then their second album didn't do anything. And then Fire and Water broke through. So I think Ireland was aware that when they signed an artist, it might take two or three albums before the connection with a big audience happens. And it's worth waiting for. We don't just sign people, stick out a record, and if it fails, kick the musicians out out onto the street again. So I think Ireland had this very understanding and sympathetic infrastructure, which was perfect for Nick.
Don't be shy, you learn to fly and see the sudden day is done From me, you see Just what you are beneath the star that came to say one rainy day An autumn for free Just be what you tragedy the problem was that nick had just lost his mojo as it were and he couldn't well obviously his his whole life was going awry but certainly he was unable to write new material and the the tragic thread that runs through the last three years of nick's life is this desperate ongoing attempt on his part to find his muse again and what we have is all there is uh, he, he, he wrote and recorded five more songs in that period although I can't even swear that he wrote those songs then. They, they, they may well date from earlier. And um, I think part of the reason that he took his life was a sudden sense, a moment of clarity perhaps, where he realised that things weren't going to change for him, that this was it. He, he didn't have an album's worth of new songs and he didn't have a vision for his artistic future. And if he didn't take his medicine, he was miserable. But if he did take his mes- medicine, he was being controlled by outside influences that the pills would dictate his moods and his ability to interact. And I think it was all too much for him. And, and, and um, there's this certain optimistic myth that people have that the fourth album was on its way and he was really immersed in recording it. And, but alas, he just didn't have the material. And, and I think that was eating him up. And after his passing, there, there were pieces in the music papers and then, especially by the mid-90s, things really did start to build in terms of Nick's popularity. And that is one of the remarkable things about, about Nick Drake is that his popularity now 
and the quality of his material has shone through and, and just continues to build. Yes. When I was a teenager in the mid-1990s, it was just as normal to listen to Nick Drake as it was to Neil Young or, or Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell. So there wasn't by then a sense in which he was an obscure cult artist. It was He was part of the mix. And for that to have happened within 20 years is quite unusual to, for him to go from nowhere to being on the same pegging as those people, certainly for, for my group of friends. But I think... Nick's music is just very good. It's well-written, it's well-performed, the guitar playing is beautiful, the tunings are unusual, the structure of the songs is unpredictable and very carefully plotted out, and Nick's voice is very unusual. I think everything about his material is distinctive, and as Joe Boyd says, it's no surprise that an audience is connected with it. It's just a shame it didn't happen while he was around, but... When Nick died, he he died in the belief that his music was absolutely obscure and unknown. And I think he was unaware, perhaps, because of the condition that he was in, that actually he did have quite a large fan base in his lifetime, and not just in England. And that there were people who were very eager to learn more about him. I think at the time of Nick's death, had there been a full-page advert in the music press saying Nick Drake performing tonight at a reasonably sized venue, I think it would have filled up. I think Nick would have been surprised. In the years immediately following Nick's death, so 75, 6, 7, 8, 9, year on year, his records sold more each year. His royalty statements grew every single year, culminating in 1979 with the first release of Fruit Tree, which was pretty much the first retrospective box set any artist of Nick's sort has had. I mean, uh, that in itself indicates that Nick was regarded as being in in quite a special category within a few short years of his death. So I think things were happening for Nick at the time of his death. He just perhaps didn't know it. But I think this, the extent to which his death itself has lent itself to his popularity is hard to gauge. But I think things were starting to happen. And I, I suspect we would, if he had lived, we would still be celebrating and enjoying his music. It would just be nice for him to be able to be part of that. To everyone listening, I cannot recommend Nick Drake, The Life, highly enough and uh, encourage everyone to to read it and go get a copy. It's been a, a pleasure and a privilege to talk about Nick Drake and, and read your brilliant biography of Nick. So thank you very much. Jason, you're very kind. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. in the ground So men of fame can never find a way till time has flown far from their dying day Forgotten one year Remembered for a while 
Much updated rim from a much outdated style Life is but a memory Happened long ago Theatre full of sadness For a long forgotten show Seems so easy Just to let it go on by Till you stop and wonder Why you never wondered why Safe in the womb of an everlasting night You find the darkness can give the brightest light Safe in your place deep in the earth That's when night you rally wide Forgotten while you're here, remembered for a while. A much updated ruin from a much outdated star. Fame is but a fruit tree, so very unsound. It can never flourish. Till its stock is in the ground So men of fame Can never find a way Till time has flown Far from their dying for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much 
plus any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.